Hello, and welcome to Comic Book Decalogue. My name is Greg Hunter, recording for the Comics Journal from Minneapolis, Minnesota. On this podcast, we ask the same ten questions to a different cartoonist with each interview. A lot of people emailing me, emailing TCJ, emailing Gary Groth, Stan Lee, are alleging that there are often more than ten questions on these, that follow-up questions creep in, uh, there are rhetorical questions now and again, etc. It's not true. Count them. Never more than ten. Do the math. Our guest this time is Michelle Fife, the creator of Copra and Zegas, and an incredibly driven cartoonist. With Copra, especially, he's someone you see not only pushing himself with his level of output, but also in his way pushing at the edges of the form. Copra is a superhero story, or at least a superperson story, and a black ops story with a generous amount of the fantastic. And it's... A rare book in its joining of the pleasures of a colorful, intense, well-told action story, a genre pastiche, and its efforts to show action in a way that feels novel, to show the fantastic in a way that actually reads as unfamiliar and strange. It's a success. I enjoy it immensely. And I'm looking forward also to the collection of Michelle's other calling card, Series Egas, which is coming out from Fanographics later this year. I hope... In the meantime, you'll enjoy our conversation. Uh, do you want to start now? Or are you still loading up? Sure. No, we're good. We're we're recording. This oh, is, we are. Yeah, oh, some shit. of this would be like, you know, ambient intro chatter <laughs> or something. It's filler, filler bullshit. <laughs> yeah, we'll, I'll definitely include that. Yeah. All right. Question number one is: What's the last? comic you finished reading the last comic I finished reading um, I'd say an issue of Wolverine written by Larry Hama okay so this would, would this would be this would be late, like late 80s early 90s early 90s yeah this was like maybe a couple days ago um, I've been on this weird Larry Hama kick recently mm-hmm. I, had, I hadn't really read his comics as a kid but I really enjoyed his work recently when I read like his Avengers comics randomly or some G.I. Joe comics I mean there's such a there's such an efficiency to that type of writing that he had sort of like a blue collar sort of like just there's such a, an economy to it you mm-hmm. know juggling all these characters these properties you know the, for the G.I. Joe line just handling a toy franchise and giving it personality and uh I sort so I dug in. I, I discovered a little bit more about his working methods, and I really related to it because, like, he just gave all these characters personalities, and he didn't really care about like a, a huge plot. Like, he didn't have this grand vision. He was just trying to get the issue done month by month. And I think there's a sort of beauty that I really respect in that. So, you know, he happened to write Wolverine for years. So I just read a couple of those I had never read them before and, and they're okay you know I think I might you know discover more issues down the line I'm sure I'm going to go bin diving at some convention and buy a bunch of them but yeah that was the last comic I read in your life as an adult comic reader and as a bin diver what have been the most pleasant surprises you've encountered over the years I've just been diving in general. I th- well, I mean, discovering titles I had never flipped through. You know, mm-hmm. obviously, that's a given. Uh, old 70s horror comics with, like, short stories drawn by complete unknowns. You know, guys that maybe had five stories 
ever drawn, you know, and they're brilliant, but they're only five stories. So it's kind of interesting to sort of discover these, these new creators, you know, what happened to them? Why do they leave comics, you know? And just kind of revisiting older comics that I either heard about or just didn't buy when I was a kid or, or even recently, just kind of getting obsessed with a creator, discovering everything they did and just hunting it down, mm-hmm. you know? And that, that could be a little bit of a problem for space restrictions, you know, like actually having copies, but also burning out on your actual interest. Sure. You know, like you just kind of get over it. You, you forget what initially attracted you to that specific creator when you sort of just absorb everything they did over a 30, 40, 50 year lifespan or a career rather. So I've been, I've been scaling it back. Honestly, I've been sort of treating it a lot more casually. You know, maybe picking up a random issue of Wolverine and reading it. I don't need to have all of them, but, you know, I have that old habit. So I'll probably just buy a bunch. Mm-hmm. I, among, uh, let's say, the, the broad community of, like, indie comics creators, I think mm-hmm. you've distinguished yourself with that, you know, work person-like ethic with committing yourself to putting out issues of Copra mm-hmm. on a regular basis. Were those... You know, serialized genre comics from years back part of the inspiration for that or did you find yourself identifying with those creators more after beginning an endeavor like Cochran? Well I've always liked and respected that sort of approach but it just didn't make sense with the kind of comics I was making mm-hmm. prior to Copra so once I started working on a monthly schedule first of all it, it, I really had to negotiate with myself on whether I could even do it or not and so once I started, I found that it wasn't impossible, and I started um, reading those older comics for inspiration. And there they were. They existed. Someone sat down and made them month mm-hmm. by month, year after year. And if you consider those careers, you know, of, of 30, 40 years, those guys never stopped. And so the, the, the test for myself when I started Cobra was, if I could do it for a year, that's fine. That's good mm-hmm. enough. Twelve measly issues. That's nothing, you know. I think John Byrne did that in like three months. I could certainly do sure. something similar in that vein, whether it fails or succeeds, whatever. I just I made the work happen. And a big part of that was it having it be my main job. You know, it was mm-hmm. no longer a, a nighttime hobby. You know, it was a, a thing that I had to create in order to make rent and pay bills. Yeah. So it was a weird, you know, so even currently, you know, it's still a balance of getting up and setting a schedule for yourself and getting the work done while balancing it with what I consider to be good comics. So it's not like I'm just plugging away at whatever book for whatever company. You know, it's all up to me. So it's sort of like I got to make it as good as I want, but it also has to be completed. So I don't know. That's that's, That's always the weird dynamic that I'm wrestling with. With respect to Capra and that process, like mm-hmm. I love those books. I think they're you know one of the most purely pleasurable comics reads, at least in my life right now. Which is wow, to, to say that um, <laughs> you know like that this next question is, is not you know a tacit critique or anything. It's just like sure, pure neutral sure. curiosity. But when you get to like the round trade paperback collections, mm-hmm. are there pages you are ever tempted to redraw? Are there when you just revisit those books? Do you ever look at a sequence and say to yourself, if I'd had a month to do that sequence, God, how much 
all the time. Yeah. I feel all every single, even just last issue, you know, I cannot look at my old work. I'm still surprised that people like it. That's great, you know, but I'm way too harsh on my own work. Mm. And I, I, if I start redrawing stuff from the past, it just, that's just, <laughs> that's a dead end. Sure. You know, you don't want to do that. A black uh, hole. You, yeah. You, I mean, I'll go back and maybe fix a typo or, or something super minor, like some, something technical, but as far as like an aesthetic choice or given, yeah, you know, I would love to have a bunch of months to make an issue, you know, or have a week to draw one page. But I think part of the function of, of Copra in my life is that it has to get done. And so what solutions, what storytelling solutions do I create on that schedule? I think that's an art in itself. You know, like that's, that's sort of what I like about those old comics. They had no time to make it better or a masterpiece or really refined. It's just what can you do? The challenge was what can you do in that time period? Mm -hmm. You have no time to be precious about it. Now there's a difference because I, it doesn't mean I'm making like get it done on Thursday work. You know, right. I'm not just batting it out. I'm still trying to put my best effort forth. I still have to create the best thing. If I'm really unhappy in the moment with the drawing, I just redo it. Mm -hmm. um, I just have to put the extra time and effort into it. So no, to answer your question, I, I, I wouldn't go back and change anything because that's the result of that time period. Mm -hmm. And it just exists. It's just there. I can't do anything about it. You know, redrawing isn't going to solve the problem that I had back then in a right. weird way. And it's sort of... It, it kind of undermines the entire reason why I'm doing this, which again is just to get things done. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, again, there's that duality of like getting it out the door, but it has to be perfect, as perfect as I could make it, mm -hmm. you know. And it's up to me to define what that is. So, yeah, man, every every month <laughs> or every every other six weeks, or you know, the, the self-publishing aspect of it really delays the creative um, aspect of it. So there's that too, but. But yeah, I wouldn't go back to the books and change art. Cool. Yeah. And our second question, question number mm -hmm. two, uh, which is a convenient segue in this case, what cartoonist doesn't get enough praise? Man, I feel like that's a loaded question because <laughs> that's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of people. I'd say in regard to their contribution and them not getting their due, mm -hmm. as opposed to just being an, an, an unknown worker who just works a lot and, and draws really well or writes really sure. well as opposed to that just someone measured against their, their effect on others I'd say Helen Joe oh, is sure. super underappreciated I mean everyone that knows her or knows her work rather uh, loves it because they know it they get it uh, but I don't think I, I, I don't think it's enough I don't think the credit is given enough to where I don't know man she's really influential there's a point like before Helen and after. And I think just a lot of people picked up on her style and her attitude and her approach. And it just, they, they ran with it. And she just sort of like, she didn't leave comics. I, I believe she still makes comics, but you know, she, she works in other industries, you know, has other interests, you know. Um, she's not waiting to get in the door and draw Alpha Flight or whatever, you know. Right. Like she's just, she has her own ambitions. But I think as a result of not being in your face all the time, uh, the audience sort of like takes her for granted. Mm -hmm. You know, 
I could be making that shit up. I don't know. I mean, I think I never hear enough about her. And I think I'm sometimes that's the, you know, maybe the curse of the Renaissance person, like you say, with her working in other industries as well. Like, I know that issue of Frontier she did a few years back made a big splash. I would yeah. at least see it, you know, uh, like retumbled constantly. Right. Images right, right. from that book. Right. I mean, yeah, in, in, in uh, right on Tumblr or on Twitter or on social media or whatever, people know about it, but it's not in the, in the dialogue as much as I would want it to be. I don't know. Maybe I'm selfish. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, we were in an interesting point in time, too, where, on the one hand, social media, you have the potential to get, you know, your work out there to get recognition at a, a more rapid clip than ever before. At the same time, I think influence can leap on to other artists. The aesthetic can spread. This is probably an oversimplification, but possibly at the expense of, like, that individual artist being elevated in, in the, not in the eyes of people, but in with, like, the breadth of people who... You know, who, who can identify that aesthetic, you know, with, along with the name of a particular artist? Mm -hmm. Well, I think a good comparison would be uh, like Michael DeForge, who is also a Renaissance man yes. and is also highly influential, but still constantly works and cranks out comic book after comic book with the same level of quality and craft. You know, so it, it's almost like the opposite of, of Helen in a way because people always refer to Michael DeForge. You know what I mean? I mean? Again, maybe I'm just making this up in my head and it's just because I haven't left my room in a month. I don't know. I don't know these things. But I do know that Helen Joe is fucking awesome. That's all I can say. And number three, if that was a loaded question, get ready. Uh, what's the most widely loved comic you can't connect with? When you say comic, do you mean like a franchise or a specific body of work? I always like to say these are open-ended by design, these, these questions. Ah, I see. They're, they're only a mirror. I mean, that's, there's also a difference between me not connecting to something and me thinking something is overrated. Sure. <laughs> you know, so that's oh, yeah. there's like a fine line. But, uh, but to keep it to your, consistent with your question, um, I'd have to say, I don't know, does Star Wars count? Because that, that, that's like a, I mean, there are comics from it, but I feel like that's just such no, a No, let's go with that, that, yeah. It's just, I don't care. Like, I, I like the original movies fine, but even creators that I love to death, when they work on a Star Wars thing, I just, I clock out. Mm -hmm. I'm not judging the property. I, I like some horseshit too. I like, you know, I like Legion of Superheroes. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying one is better than the other. I just don't connect with Star Wars. Sure, I, and th does that go back even to childhood? Like yeah. the, the window in which... It would have been most likely to resonate with you. Sure. I mean, I guess I never got into Transformers either. I don't really care. I never got into GI Joe really, even though I had some toys and I've read the comics and I've loved the comics. You know, I've, I've learned to love the comics over time. But yeah, Star Wars. I don't know, and it's just everywhere. So it's just kind of like maybe that's too easy of an example. I don't know. I'd say, you know, are two answers too much? <laughs> no, no. no. Um, <laughs> I don't know. There's speaking of influence. I mean, there's like the work of Paul Pope, who I like his work. Okay, you know, nice guy. Whatever. It's not a. It's again. It's not a personal thing. It's just sort of like I never. It never really spoke to me. And so seeing it be so influential for so long, mm -hmm. it's kind of a head scratcher in a weird way. I mean, that's not true. I get why people are attracted to it. I just never connected to it. 
you know, I saw its influences. I see where it's coming from, but it's a little cold. Uh, you've probably, you know, talked Suicide Squad to death over the years in interviews, but I, I wanted to ask you just briefly, since you mentioned something like, like G.I. Joe, which was also, uh, you know, especially with Larry Hama, mm-hmm. had a, a large comics presence in the 80s, comparing like that 80s Suicide Squad run to something like G.I. Joe, is it, you think, the extra measure of of cynicism or, or real-world groundedness in those those issues that you think made that a more resonant comic for you? Suicide Squad or yeah. G.I. Joe? Suicide Squad compared to contemporaneous comics like the, the G.I. Joe books of the 80s, things like that. Mm-hmm. That's funny. I don't really register any cynicism from, from John Ostrander's work on Suicide Squad or as a general point of approach to his writing. I think he's generally a pretty optimistic sort of writer uh he just kind of like peppers his work with some sort of noir tendencies but i don't think his worldview is cynical per se in the way that maybe uh, i don't know a warren ellis hmm. or even a garth ennis would have like a really refined uh cynicism or pat mills whom by the love by the way i love like oh, yeah. martial law is a fantastic <laughs> fucking comic i mean it's just great uh but it's dripping with hate yeah. and cynicism and passion too, you know, and love for certain things. But uh, I, I, yeah, I, I have spoken at length about Suicide Squad. I could just boil it down to I just like those comic. I liked those comics as a kid, and in revisiting them as an adult, I found that they weren't dumb and they weren't talking down to me, and I really enjoyed them as comic book fiction, comic book superhero fiction, and it didn't read as '80s comics. It just read as good comics. And so I think that's why I just kind of latched onto it again. It, it was certainly the nostalgia factor helped. Sure. And I made it easier. But when I went back and I read those comics as an adult, I mean, that it was just the greatest. And I think that's kind of a surface-level reason as to, as to what influenced me to, to take that as a template, you know. And move forward with it. I think it was just a simple enough concept for me to grasp and and move with it, you know. Because again, it, it kind of feeds back into getting this stuff done. Like mm-hmm. I have to make an issue. I need a concept. I need to I need to just move forward with a simple concept and just work from it, rather than just trying to come up with something new every month, mm-hmm. which is what I was doing prior. Not every month, but every project was just come up with something completely different. And so. I don't know cynicism in, in Suicide Squad. Maybe that's inherent in the in the in the theme of just kind of like mercenary uh, supervillains. Yeah, we, we can't get Martin Suicide for, no, for too long. No, I'm no, not no. telling myself, but yeah, yeah. I think when I say cynicism, I think I mean those books is you know like Iran Contra era comics mm-hmm. with you know where part of the concept is the plausible deniability about the activities of the U.S. government because they can always say. Well, these were supervillains doing supervillain sure. stuff, not, sure, sure. not like secret U.S. interventionalism. And right, right, right. I also think it's probably just kind of like the way Mike Barron used to write Punisher comics. You just read the headlines that week or that mm-hmm. month, and you just had to fill pages. You had to make a story. So why not make you know these stories based on real events? And maybe the kids aren't going to get it. And the, the random adult that reads it might relate to it, but we just need to fill stories, man. That's all. That's all there is to it, you know. Okay, so question number four is proceeding along the same lines. 
you can send one comic back in time to yourself at 14 uh, that presumably you weren't reading in your right. teenage years. What is that comic? Well, 14, I guess I was reading, I think at that point I had binged and purged image comics. I, w- I was right there when it started and I was just getting over it. And so I'm trying to think, what would I like at 14? And um, I'd have to say either Akira. Oh, yeah. Because I knew about the movie. I just hadn't seen it. And I never, I certainly never saw the comic book or the manga books. So I think that would have blown me away. Sure. And it would have kept it in line with what I already had read. Because even though I stopped reading Image Comics, I, I still had that sensibility. I still liked those things. Yeah. Even though later I discovered... You know, Sin City and Evan Dorkin's Milk and Cheese, those were kind of my gateways back. Mm-hmm. I think something like Akira would have would have really impressed me. But then there's also stuff like Raw. Raw magazine would oh, yeah. have been fantastic. Are you kidding? Like, I didn't discover... I mean, I knew about it because I saw Comic Book Confidential, the documentary that aired on Bravo in the early 90s or mm-hmm. something. And they went through everyone. I mean, from the golden age to uh, modern-day comics at the time. And that's where I discovered Raw and Love and Rockets and, uh, you know, Will Eisner. I had no idea who the, what the spirit was. But I think Raw would have really affected me. I didn't actually find an issue of Raw until my 20s. And it was fantastic. I mean, it's one of the greatest comics ever. The greatest anthologies, greatest comics. I mean, everyone in there is just fantastic, mm-hmm. you know. So I'd go with Raw, actually. Because <laughs> cool. that's a more esoteric thing than, mm-hmm. like... Akira, which was everywhere back then. I just somehow missed it. Yeah, were those phone book style English language collections already? Would they have been around the 90s? I don't know. I'm not sure. The ones I, I eventually saw for the first time were the colored epic versions, the individual issues. But, you know, they were, I saw like, what, number 30 or something? I'm not going to jump in 30. Right. And it was like overpriced, you know, because it was a nicer presentation, whatever. The format was different. But whatever, if I could go back in time, I'd probably at least give give myself a copy of Raw sure. or something, just something like that. And question number five. I'll be interested in your answer to this as someone who has sort of, you know, his own cottage industry. But uh, <laughs> what's a change you'd like to see across the comics industry? Man, these are just... <laughs> we could just have a, an episode on that alone, right? I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, pricing or less... Sexual misconduct. <laughs> I don't know. Just little things like that. More money. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe get rid of Artist Alley altogether. Let's just get rid of that fucking concept. You know, for these bigger shows. Just like no one, no one is there for that. Just concentrate on, on, on the things you, you're selling, which is just IP. It's just, you know, it's mm-hmm. that, for those kind of conventions. And then Artist Alley could just be the smaller shows that sure. we all enjoy. You know, like SPX and Cab and whatever. You know, but I think... Just make the divide. Just make it. Just divide those those farms. You know, yeah, there there is you know this weird vestigial tale at the I guess the fandom conventions where comics are are at once the reason for it historically, but mm-hmm. suddenly the small corner of these larger festivals that yeah are, are more about IP, like you say. I mean, it's also so expensive for the artists involved, and and you know. It's a good money maker for certain artists, you know, but sometimes it's just two different conventions, you know. So I say just get rid of it. We don't need to know the men who make these things. I think that's a mistake. You know, you don't go to a market and you see the farmer stand next to the milk. Like, fuck that. Like, (laughs) 
We don't need to know where the eggs come from. It's the same. That's what they're. That's what they're publishing. They're just publishing newspapers. You know, they're just publishing, and they're probably not going to publish it for much longer. But whatever. I don't know. They've also been saying that since the seventies. Yeah. So, who knows? Yeah. There's. I guess a new cycle of, of articles about the Marvel business model and its perils. But you know. Yeah. It's it's going to be fine. Yeah. It's going to be fine. Uh, in the crosshairs before and sure yeah yeah, yeah for sure it. and you know I'm, I might change my mind tomorrow I don't, I don't know I mean I'll do an artist alley in a heartbeat <laughs> you know what I mean it'd be nice in, in any case if it weren't often a financial risk for uh, artists to come sure. and exhibit at a convention sure so it's too often yeah. the case that it's a gamble of sorts yeah but you know when you ask me about changing the industry I don't know man I, uh, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> it, there's so many things, but every industry has its own troubles. I don't know if there's one catch-all problem that I run into. Uh, distribution, I mean, I mean, the list is endless, you know. And question number six, what's the closest you've come to quitting cartooning? Right before Cobra, mm-hmm. actually. You know, we always have, like, our, our, our down times. We're kind of, like, questioning why we do what we do. But I think before Cobra, I was really just trying to make some headway in my in trying to make a career out of this mm-hmm. not just the thing I, I do on the side but everything I've, I've done up until that point was designed for me to live off making comic books and that just wasn't working out how I wanted it to mm-hmm. be so before I moved on before I sort of like took stock of what I was doing with my life I had to have one more go at it have have myself create this sort of weird superhero comic that I've conditioned myself to like all throughout my life, but I just never created it. Mm-hmm. So that I'd say that was the moment, like the few months where I was really just thinking, okay, that's it. I'm putting too much effort into this one thing with like the thinnest returns. You know, it's not even an enjoyable hobby at that point. You know, you're just a masochist or a crazy person repeating the same thing, expecting different results. Which I know is a, cl- a cliche. I don't know if that's a, the right definition of, of insanity, but it was just frustrating. So I'd say right before Cobra. Now, Zegas is coming out in a collected form from Fanta Graphics in mm-hmm. a few months. That's, that's correct? Yeah. How that's does that right. feel in terms of uh, you know, validation or a, a capstone for your career to date? Yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a great sense of validation, you know? Because I still like those stories and comics, and I tried keeping them in print as long as I could. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad it's getting like a second life through a publisher I respect and a publisher that I've worked with before in, in, a, in smaller capacities. But now it's going to be a book of mine, and it has my work on it, and that's such a big deal for me. It's great. So I'm glad there was an interest there, and I'm glad that that's moving forward. And yeah, it's coming out, I think, in November. So I'm just now working on on putting everything together and just making the complete package, you know, ready to go. But uh, I'm really happy. Yeah, I'm super happy. In fact, I it was Cobra, I made Cobra in between Zegas issues. I was supposed to go back to Zegas, mm-hmm. but Cobra just took over. I mean, it just again, it was born from frustration, and it developed into this monster thing where I just had to kind of keep it up in order to survive I had created something that kept me afloat so it was really difficult to put that aside to go back to Zegas which was the thing that I couldn't get arrested for even though I was putting everything all of my effort into this thing 
There too is the temptation, or, or I guess the absence of the temptation to edit the same, to feel different at all, like your relationship to that work and in preparing it for a, a collected mm-hmm. edition. I considered it, but I, I, I treat it the same as like the Copa rounds, like what you asked me about earlier about touching things up. Mm-hmm. And uh, so far, I haven't done anything considerable. You know, I don't, I don't think I, I will. I think I'll just keep it as is again unless it's a technical thing or a typo or something like that but but I'm happy with that work you know I, I like it uh, I'm glad it's going to get like a, a new audience and question number seven what's the best advice you've heard about making comics uh, well early on I, I met a bunch of um, I say early on when I first seriously started trying to break into the business I met a few professionals a few older professionals they gave me tips here and there, but uh, I remember talking to Ernie Colon. Do you know Ernie Colon's work? I don't think so. He worked for uh, Harvey Comics. He did, uh, you know, Casper the Friendly Ghost for years, and then he worked on Marvel and DC stuff and Valiant. And he became like a mainstream comics staple almost. I love his work. Love it. And I met him, and he told me to just draw different faces. It was such a simple bit of advice that I... I I use to this day, you know, he, he told me that he wasn't crazy about George Price's work, but he respected the fact that he drew all his women differently. Mm-hmm. And that sort of stuck with me. It's such a minor, almost throwaway bit of advice. And he was really just making a comment. I don't think it was even framed as an advice, as advice, but I held on to it and I love it. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know if you wanted something a little bit more grand, no, I but, like that. but I, I actually I, find that I've received some bad advice and you know, in comics, everyone's an advice giver. You always, sure. everyone gives you their fucking two cents and it's just, what are you going to do with that? Just smile politely or tell them to shut the fuck up. I don't know. No, I, I actually, I really like it whenever we get a, you know, a bit of uh, advice about process that would also make sense to a lay person. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a big a big thing for me was reading that Love and Rockets book that I think it was their 10th anniversary. It was a pamphlet comic. It was a comic st- standard size. And it kind of broke down the process of how Jaime worked and how Gilbert worked. And I learned so much just from that. I read that thing to death. Coverless. I mean, it was just, it was my Bible for a long time. But there, I mean, I don't know. That's the way they worked. And I tried using whatever I learned from that in my own work but you know you, you take from places here and there and you develop your own kind of methods so but the Ernie Colonial that's that's a good one for me that's something I still use and question number eight what's the worst decision you've made as a cartoonist man you and these questions these are great <laughs> I'm keeping I'm definitely keeping that <laughs> <laughs> well I wouldn't say bad decisions, but I've had weird circumstances where those situations have sort of like informed the way I work now. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I don't regret going through it. I'm glad I, I worked those shit jobs and worked with, I wouldn't say terrible people. I've never had a bad editor, you know, for example, I've never had a bad collaborator. It's just sort of like the, the situation wasn't the best. Mm-hmm. So. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like my worst decision was probably taking, oh man, actually a big waste of time that I do sort of regret is the time I stopped making comics in order to develop pitches. And to this day, it just kind of depresses me how much, how much importance I put into developing a pitch 
for a publisher to for for nothing. I just wasn't creating comics, and that's the trick. Fuck pitches and fuck editors and publishers. They just make comic books. And I'm not talking about samples to send to like Marvel or DC. I'm talking about thirty to fifty page pages of developing a pitch to get a book deal to just ride that sort of wave. You know, just because that's the thing you do. Oh, if you're not working on a on a monthly book, oh, what, what the thing you do? And there's nothing you develop then that you're still interested in, like creative and conceptually. That now that your profile has has been elevated by the success of copyright, you would you would consider pursuing as a as a book? No, not at all, not at all, no. And uh, I think it, it, the the only thing it did was add to my general frustration with the industry and my position in it, which was next to nothing. And uh, so if anything, it just kind of fueled me to do my own thing. Uh, but other other things did that too. But the, I just look back and I'm like, I wasted so much goddamn time when I could have just been making mini comics mm-hmm. and probably learned more from that, just getting pages done. So I think pitching is an art unto itself and pitching for different companies requires different muscles. But I have no time for that now. I, you know, I'm just busy. Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, I don't have time for that. That's not that's not how I meant it. But I felt like I've created a situation right now that that works for me. Yeah, you and I, I don't have an audience. Yeah, well, thankfully, you know, one I don't take for granted for a second because it prevents me from having to worry about like developing a pitch and I hope someone likes it and then waiting. The waiting mm-hmm. is always the worst. You know, it's even worse than just saying yes or no. It's like you just want to know whether. It's going to be made or not because you need to move forward with something like Copers, just self-publishing. It is so immediate that it's difficult to go back. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just really hard to go back. So yeah, I don't know. That, I guess that would be my answer. Question number nine: What work from another medium has influenced you the most? Oh, George <laughs> Gross. I'd say the work of George Gross really influenced me. You know, he's a Dadaist. He's a political cartoonist, mm-hmm. whether he's considered one or not. But I think his actual physical ink line influences me to this day. And his color work is fantastic also. And it still, I think, resonates with me. Really, just go online and, and just Google. His, you know, get a book, go to any bookstore. And I'm sure he has tons of books. But it's fantastic. He's a, he's, he's a German painter, artist mm-hmm. from the 30s and 40s. So I would say that as a non-comics work. And our final question, mm. question number mm-hmm. 10. Aliens have made contact with Earth, and they seem benevolent, but we still want to make a good impression. You've been selected to introduce them to comics. What do you show them first? First? Mm-hmm. I would uh, show them the IDW artist edition of Spawn, drawn by Todd McFarlane. Because <laughs> that that's just to show these aliens what pure ambition and determination could yield mm-hmm. and they could just do with that information whatever they want <laughs> i don't know i think it's it's i think it's a little hacky to sort of talk down to todd mcfarland or his style or anyone that says he can't draw i mean is blind and that's a sort of a knee-jerk reaction to a, a general distaste for the 90s i think he's a fantastic artist and uh he abstracts figures and and, and art in general to in a satisfying degree, and I think just lumping in lumping him into like a '90s phenomenon, I think it's lazy and disrespectful to the work that this fine man has made. And those aliens are going to discover that once mm-hmm. they read that IDW 
artist edition of Spawn. It's going to be a game changer for them. I would additionally, since you mentioned it, I remember the first time I listened to the audio of, of the Gary Groth, Todd McFarlane interview from mm-hmm. the 90s. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've heard this. I've read the uh, interview. I haven't heard the audio, but it's in, I love that it, interview. It distinguishes itself, I guess, in audio for the number of like, I don't know, pregnant pauses in there. But yeah, I think I came to that with, with my own biases mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Ex- expected maybe a sort of smackdown of the poster boy for 90s infamy. Mm-hmm. You know, but I, I saw McFarlane in a new light afterwards, and that you, you get a real sense of when he was at Marvel. Say, he was working within like very specific confines, was single-minded enough to really push at those to advocate for his own aesthetic, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. yeah, make himself valuable enough too to right. like, call his own shots. Right, right. It's I mean, it's pure effort. I mean, it's it's almost uh, the American dream filtered through a comic book. <laughs> filter, you know, I don't know. I love it, man. I love it. I can't read those comics, don't get me wrong. I but they look wonderful. The the ambition prose wise of someone who's clearly a fan of he Alan Moore's eighties writing. He just he yeah. tried. He went for it, you know? He even he says those comics are terrible. They're unreadable. I like reading them. They're fine. They're not great, but whatever. But just those are physical reminders of uh, that stubbornness can get you what you want. So, awesome. Well, let's end on that. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. Of course.